This is uh, not the last sermon in the Gospel of Mark. We have one more following our, our missionary coming, and, and we're going to look at the Mark's Great Commission, the long ending of Mark, and, and we'll get into that uh, in a couple of weeks, what that looks like, why they call it that, and, and so on and so forth. Heard an interesting story this week. H.B. Charles Jr., he's a great preacher. He, he's someone who I've read some of his books. It's really encouraged me and, and challenged the way I preach and the way I teach. And he tells this story about a, a slave master's son who at night, without his father's knowledge, would go out to the slaves and he would take his Bible and he would read the, the stories of the Bible to the slaves. His dad didn't know about it. And one of his, one of the more prominent slaves, one of the more liked slaves, I guess you could say, he got very deathly ill one day. To the point they thought he was going to die. And the master goes out to check on him and see how he's doing. And all the slave would tell him is, I want your son to come. I want your son to come. And the master says, why? He says, I want your son to come. Finally, he says, you've got to tell me why you want to talk to my son. Because to the master's knowledge, he didn't know the son and the slave knew each other. You know. He says, why do you want my son to come? And he says, because he makes that book talk. It's my prayer today that the book talks to us. So if you will, follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going on before you to Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Church, this is some of the most beautiful words ever written in Greek, English, French, whatever. He is risen. That's the title of the message today, simply, Risen. That he is risen, we can have hope. Because he is risen, we can have hope. Do you understand what that truly offers us in his resurrection? Biblical hope is, is the Greek word elpis. It doesn't mean that we hope because, well, someday it might come along. Someday my ship might come in. That type of thing. It's not that kind of hope. This is a hope we are assured of. We just don't know when. We don't know how. But we know it's coming. And because of his resurrection, we can have that blessed hope. We have a hope because that grave is empty. And because we have that hope, we don't have to live in fear. 
We don't have to live in terror or anxiety. You know, about five, six years ago, if you were to go to a conference where pastors were gathering and you were just to take a random baseball, I don't recommend doing this, by the way, but if you were to just take a baseball and throw it into a crowd of pastors, you were likely to hit somebody who within the past week had preached about fear and overcoming fear and seven steps to overcoming your anxiety and, or something of that nature. But then came the pandemic and rubber had to meet the road. You don't hear a lot of sermons about fear anymore. But I can tell you this morning, we shouldn't stop preaching about it. God has not given us a spirit of fear. We don't have to be afraid because we have hope. We, the Christians, we live without fear of death, without fear of failure, fear of loss, without fear of misery, without fear of suffering, without fear of paranoia or anxiety, because he has gone before us. He has made a way because he is risen. This is the true climax to Mark's gospel. Now last week I, I did slightly misspeak. I said that the only times in Mark's gospel he's called the son of God is by the voice that when he's baptized, the, the voice at the Mount of Transfiguration, and by the centurion at the crucifixion. There was one more group that acknowledged Jesus was the son of God. It was demons. But he told them to be quiet, not tell anybody. Everybody has been told, everybody within hearing distance of him has heard three different times without, being, without it being silenced that this was, is, forever will be the Son of God. And that Son of God has risen from the grave, proving that he is in fact divine, proving his deity. More than that, this is not just the climax to a book, the climax to a gospel account. This is the greatest moment in the life of Christ. And because of that, we understand it's the greatest moment in the New Testament. And because of that, we understand it's probably the greatest moment in all of Scripture, right? This is everything it's been pointing us towards. Like Alistair Begg says, the Old Testament is teaching us about his coming. In the Gospels, he comes. And then in Acts, he's preached. In the Epistles, he's explained. And in Revelation, he's expected. It's all pointing to this moment. Because it's not just the greatest moment in Mark's Gospel. It's not just the greatest moment in the New Testament. It's not just the greatest moment in the Bible. This, we believe, this is the greatest moment in human history. Amen? How can, how can we not be excited about that? Right? Some of you haven't had your coffee this morning. That's okay. Why is this moment great? Because it's a miracle? No. Not because it's just a simple miracle. It goes beyond that. You understand with the crucifixion, we are given atonement. We're given forgiveness. But it's because of the resurrection. You see, oh, I'm forgiven of my sins. Now what? If you only preach just the death of Christ and you don't preach the resurrection of Christ, you're missing the now what? The what comes next? I've been saved. I've been forgiven. All my sins are washed away. Now what? Now, now, it's not that I live because someday I'm going to get to go be with Jesus. Now, Jesus comes and lives and dwells within me. Now I get to live for eternity. 
Now I get to live for, in, in hope of, of all that he has promised in that eternal future. With the resurrection, Christ proves his divinity. He proves his authority. He proves his word is true. He proves he, is, he has been, is, and, and will be exactly who he's claimed to be. And therefore, if we are faithful to him who is faithful, he will be faithful to us. And all the promises he said about who we have been, who we are, and who we will be. We've been sinners. But through his shed blood on the cross, if we place our trust in him, our faith in him, we're forgiven. If we've done that, that may be who we have been, but now we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We are free from sin. We are the kingdom of God. We are his church. We are his bride. And if we are that now, then one day we will reign with him. We will be with him in eternity in his presence. There will come a day, Paul promises us this. Paul says there will come a day where we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality the empty tomb is what makes that possible you understand that this morning it's the resurrection that makes that happen it's in our text in this moment the christian is given hope and we look at these ladies and and we need to understand where it, it was exactly they went that morning we look back in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Now the timing of this, we always think of the Resurrection Sunday. We always think of, of Easter as happening on Sunday morning. But really, this story, this passage begins Saturday night. I was trying to figure out who the biker guy was that just came in. It's my brother-in-law. Sorry. <laughs> if anybody's wondering who Grizzly Adams is back there. I know him. He's not a threat. <laughs> uh, the timing of this, when it begins, is at 6 o'clock on Saturday night. Now, if you recall way earlier, back when we first started this series, back in chapter 1, verse 32, Jesus comes to Capernaum, he comes to Peter's house, and it was on a Sabbath day, after the sun had set, then everybody starts flocking to Jesus, because then everybody could move about. You see, the Sabbath traditions wouldn't allow them to go walking and doing and things like that. And these women would not have had time on Friday to go and purchase the spices and the ointments and the aloes and all of that. They were going from the cross to preparing the Passover meal Friday night. These women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, they're the ones making the purchase. They're the same ones mentioned in the text last week, having been witnesses to the crucifixion. Luke adds that Joanna was also present, which... Mark could have meant when he said there were also women looking on from a distance. He, he probably just didn't have time or didn't want to waste the ink to list all of them. Or it's possible that the reason Mark and Luke mention different women is because their audiences knew different women from that crowd. And so that's why they do that. It's not a, it's not a contradiction here. 
Regardless, these women, they go, they purchase spices so they can go and anoint Jesus' body. See, the Jewish people, they don't mummify their corpses like the Egyptians did. But they would anoint their bodies with lotions and ointments. And this is actually an act of love that is done to delay the smell of decay. That rhymes, so you know it's true. This is, this is to stop the stench from coming out of the tombs. And what this really tells us, if we, if we stop, if we step back and think about this for a moment, they weren't going to the tomb because they were prepared for a resurrection. They weren't expecting to find anything other than a dead body that Sunday morning. They spent money. They took time. They made plans to meet at the tomb. They believed they had to do this because of the love they had for Jesus when he was alive. And now they've got what they need that Saturday night. They, they likely go to bed with plans, like I said, to meet the next morning. And I imagine it was a lot of restless tossing and turning that evening. We go back to verse 2. It says, And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. You see the foreshadowing there, right? When the sun had risen. Mark, you clever writer. The Sabbath ends on Saturday evening. So the next day is the first day of the week. What's that tell us? That it's Sunday morning. That's why we have church on Sunday morning, by the way. This is the Lord's day. This is the day we celebrate the resurrection. This is when the believers gather together and we come together in hope and we come together in joy and we come together in expectation and we encourage one another. We build one another up because we have this hope that we all have in common with one another. That's why we call it the Lord's Day. One pastor said every Sunday is an implicit celebration of the resurrection of Christ and we would do well to celebrate it more explicitly. This is another reason we don't just wait till Easter to talk about the resurrection. This is a great reason why we don't wait till Christmas to share the gospel. This is a weekly thing the church must do when we come together and we celebrate the Lord's Day. It says very early. Very early is likely when they left their homes. And then as individuals, like I said, they, they would probably meet up when the sun had risen. We know this because John makes it very clear. Mary kind of beats them there. John 20 verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. She got there before everybody else, or at least was headed there before everyone else while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. As we're going to see in a couple of weeks, Mary also leaves on her own, or at least goes in her own direction by herself. Because before she leaves, she's going to meet somebody she doesn't recognize at first. This all happens around 6 a.m., but on the way, on the road, or, or maybe at the, the base of the hill, they, they happen to run into one another. They might have planned to meet at a certain spot at the foot of the hill. 
And they would talk as they walked to the tomb together. But along the way, they begin to realize something. They begin to remember a problem they hadn't really thought through. Verse 3. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now they knew the stone was there. Mark made that very clear back in verse 47 of the previous chapter. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. If they saw where he was laid, they know there was going to be this big, big rock rolled in place. And so naturally they have to consider how they're going to move that out of the way. But they've not thought of that in all the anticipation of coming this Sunday morning. And maybe they had, but they just couldn't find any of the disciples. Where were they at? What were they doing? Well, they were gone into hiding. So getting a few of them to make a public appearance might have been kind of a difficult task. What's more likely, and I think this is my take on it, you can think what you like about it, but it's kind of like one of those things when you get excited about going somewhere or maybe you're anxious about going somewhere and you're about halfway there and you remember, I forgot my wallet, right? Or where's my car keys? <laughs> I've locked myself out of the house. Am I the only one who's ever done that? No, right? Okay. And so they were excited. And when they get there, they're like, wait, how are we going to move this big rock? Oh, I didn't think about that. I don't believe this is one of those Abraham on Mount Moriah situations where, where Isaac is saying, you know, where's the sacrifice God will provide? I don't think they were walking up there saying, well, God will provide a way to move the big rock because clearly they didn't expect it to be moved. You know, maybe they thought, well, Salome, she's a minor character. We'll make her do it. No, they didn't, they didn't do that. They didn't think they could just find someone else and this was a challenge. This was a problem that they were going to have to figure out. And they had no idea how to get it moved or who would move it. And again, that tells us they really didn't expect it to be moved when they got there. Now, Matthew tells us what did happen before they got there. He says, behold, this is Matthew 28, verse 2. There was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now, this earthquake was probably of a local sort because they would have felt it on their way there. They didn't. So they're going to the tomb expecting it to still be there and expecting a corpse to still be inside. They have no idea what's waiting on them. Now we know, we know there's hope. We know there's something that's going to build their faith. But imagine their emotions this morning when they get up. They, they probably wash themselves quickly. They get dressed and each woman heads out the door. Still pretty dark outside. They didn't get much sleep the night before. You know, we don't really talk about that Sabbath Saturday, do we? We don't talk about that Saturday very often. But I imagine that was a very stressful day, a very depressing day. You know, this is worse than a day after you lost your job. Imagine losing your job, your best friend, your mentor, and a family member all in the same 24-hour period. Not only that, but you've lost your purpose for living your life for the past few years. It's all been nailed to a cross and publicly humiliated, shaming you publicly 
And now you've got to rethink your life. Peter had said in Matthew 19, 27, we left everything and followed you. And they had. They'd given up everything. And no wonder these women couldn't find them. You know how ashamed these men would have had to have felt? The consequences of being caught in public? I imagine the scene that Friday night went something kind of like this, building up towards Saturday with John entering the room and saying, well, it's over. I was at the cross and he's dead. And he must really not plan on coming back around because he asked me to watch Mary for him. Thaddeus says, well, you know, they all tagged Peter, right? Some little girl saw him and knew who he was. And from the, from the corner, Peter, with tear-filled eyes, looks up and just glares at him. Thaddeus, his foot in his mouth, says, Peter, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. And so he just, Peter puts his head back between his hands and begins to weep. James probably said something like, imagine if they see one of us in public, we're going to get arrested too, or worse. Matthew in the corner whispers, a little too loud. I can't go to jail right now. I'm busy trying to find a job. I left my tax collecting for this whole thing. And many of the disciples nod their head in agreement. And Peter, finally, for a moment of silence, he struggles to get the words out. And he says, I told them it wasn't me, that I didn't know him, but I just wish I would have kept my mouth shut. I should have gone through all the streets. I should have told everyone willing to listen. I was his disciple. I loved him. And Thomas says, quiet down, you idiot. You want him to hear us? You want him to come find all of us? Just keep quiet. And then off to the side, the women begin to plot. Tomorrow, when Sabbath is over, we'll go get the ointments and the aloes and we'll, we'll take care of his body. These guys aren't going anywhere. So Saturday, they made their purchases, they gathered their things, gripped in fear, gripped in worry. But now it's Sunday, and the sun is coming up, and they're traveling to the tomb where hope lies in the grave of Joseph of Arimathea, and what they see will renew their faith. Verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. You understand the tombs were carved out of the mountain itself. They were basically caves. Most tombs in that day and age were. And most of the poor folks would have had square doors, square rocks placed in front of the tomb because it would keep the stench in and grave robbers out. But a tomb that belonged to a wealthy person like Joseph... Well, they would have had large circular stones resting in a rut that would be hard to move, almost impossible to move without making a lot of noise, without having several men pushing it. And they did this so people could come in and anoint the bodies and preserve the bodies and things like that. Well, the ladies don't have several men. And so they're talking and they're trying to figure out what to do or who to call. But then looking up, the Greek word here is anablepo, and it's an interesting, it's a powerful choice of word, really. It's a powerful choice of words. 
Because it can mean looking up, or it can also mean to regain or restore your sight. It's the same word that Mark uses back in chapter 10 with blind Bartimaeus. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight and ablepo. Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The implication is once the tomb has come into view, once they could see it, they notice the stone is rolled away. But another way we can understand that is when the tomb is opened, their eyes also are opened. And many of you can say the same thing. When I realized the grave was empty, my eyes were opened and I saw the power of Christ. I'm, I'm dead to my sin, but now because he lives, now I'm a new living thing. That's the birth of faith within our hearts. When the stone is rolled away, the heart of stone made into a heart of flesh, Something that was there is no longer where it once was. And all Jesus had ever said was true. And everything that unfolds from here on out only proves that he was and is who he said he was and is, who scripture tells us even now who he is. You see, the tomb is not open to let Jesus out. The tomb was open to let the witnesses in. That they see the truth. The biggest obstacle to seeing Jesus was rolled back. The rock that was blocking them has been rolled away. Matthew said an angel had moved it following the earthquake. He said it was a great earthquake. It's great in its power. It's not great in its range or its reach. Matthew makes it clear that there had been a guard put in place as well. And the stone was sealed. But upon seeing the angel, initially the guards, for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Dead men. You may wonder, why doesn't Mark mention this? Why doesn't he even suggest that those men were there? Well, it's likely because the women didn't notice them. They were focused on the empty tomb. And there's another little lesson for us. Are you focused on the one who's risen? Or are you focused on the as good as dead enemies of the world? That's the way we should walk, focused on Christ, not focused on the empty threats of the enemy. Some believe the soldiers had already scurried away by the time the women got there, but Matthew makes it very clear. They saw the women arrive. They heard what the angel said. Then they left. Speaking of the angel, verse 5, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. The part of the tomb they walked into that morning was the, what's called the outer room. That would lead to the inside, to the burial chamber that was inside the tomb. But they see this young man, and the, the Greek here implies he's a man between the ages of 20 and 40. That makes me feel a little old. Mark's wording is implying to the reader without outright saying it, this is an angel of God. Now Luke tells us there were two angels, but Matthew and Mark, they, they emphasize the one who speaks. And for Mark, this white robe is a, is a dead giveaway. It's, a, it's indicating his heavenly origin. But 
Mark and Luke, they're going to go into greater detail. Mark, Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke. Matthew says his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Luke says he's dressed in dazzling apparel. And I don't mean like Elvis used to wear, okay? This is bright, shining clothing. Mark doesn't do this. He, he describes the man much more plain, but his description means something more. And especially how, how his presence affects the women. They're alarmed. In the Greek, it's a compound word, meaning a very strong emotion or an unusual distress. Normal people sitting down don't fill you with that kind of awe. So when they walk in, if he was just a normal man, they would say, who are you? You're not Jesus. What are you doing in here? Instead, they walk in and they're shocked. They're surprised. Mark makes that very clear. And he's going to give them one of the most amazing, one of the most precious things humanity has ever received. The truest, purest hope. Verse 6. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of, Naz Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. You know, another thing angels typically do when they show up is they remind everybody, don't be afraid. That's basically what this guy does, right? But notice what else he says here. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. The word seek there in the Greek, it means they're trying to reach Jesus. They're trying, they desire to find Jesus. He'd been crucified and, and that again confirms his death. It confirms that he did die. There's no question about that. Jesus was dead. You're looking for a dead man. But then the most beautiful thing ever said in all of history, but he's risen. He is risen. It's only one word in the Greek. Egarthi. And it means he has been raised. Church, that's, that's our message. That's our mission. All in one word. He has been raised. The fact that he has been raised is, is important. It implies the same thing the apostles will make clear to the church over and over and over again. That the resurrection is the work of the living God. That it's not just a coincidence. He didn't just decide to get up because he wasn't really dead. He was dead and God raised him from the dead. He made it clear he, he is God himself that Christ has a part in this. In fact, the resurrection itself is Trinitarian. Jesus said in John, 8, uh, sorry, John 10, 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority, speaking of his own life, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Peter makes it clear in Acts 3 and Acts 4. Paul repeatedly says it to the church too in his epistles. In 1 Corinthians six fourteen. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 
But that, I said it's Trinitarian, so where's the Spirit's work? Well, Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Since he has been raised, he's no longer in the tomb and the Holy Spirit that raised him now dwells in us. That's beautiful. That's powerful. If he dwells in us, then we don't have to fear death, do we? We don't have to fear tragedy. We don't have to fear pain. Those things may happen, they may not, but we don't have to fear it because God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This angel says, look, there's no body. There's nothing left in the burial chamber. He's gone. See the place where they laid him. There's nothing there but the bedclothes. There's nothing there but the wrappings. Someone took time to place them neatly aside. Grave robbers don't do that. Somebody trying to steal Jesus' body wouldn't take time to do that. John gives us this. He says, Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Christ left his grave clothes there because he's never going to be touched by the grave again. Hallelujah. Matthew Henry says it like this, Christ had left his grave clothes behind him there. He laid them aside because he rose to die no more. Lazarus came out of his grave with his grave clothes on, for he was to use them again. When we arise from the death of sin into the life of righteousness, we must leave our grave clothes behind us. We must put off all our corruption. Christ left those in the grave as it were for our use. If the grave is a bed to the saints, thus he has sheets he has sheeted that bed and made it ready for made it ready for them in other words when we came to life in Christ we came to die that old life passed away and we came we let go of our sin that we might have a resurrected life a new life Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He goes on, he says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That newness of life is the hope we have now. As we walk by faith, as we live in faith, the resurrection itself, it opens the door of possibility of resurrection for us. If Christ was not resurrected, if this was all a sham, if this wasn't true, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, Paul said. You know how much we've given up? How much worldly pleasure we could be living for, and yet we give it up because he's risen. And if he's not risen, what are we doing here? The whole world should look at us and say, those morons. But we know something they don't. 
He has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But that's not the case. He is risen. Verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. By the way, go and tell is the lifestyle of the believer. Go and tell is not just the great commission. It is the daily for us. It is what we are to do. It is our, we live and breathe, go and tell of the resurrection. Amen? We're Pentecostal. We're about the harvest. We're about bringing people to Christ. That's what the gifts of the Spirit empower us to do. Amen? So that's what we're to do. Go and tell. And the angel tells these women to do just that very thing. Now remember, in this day and age, women weren't believed. If they were called to court, women's testimony wouldn't hold up. Nobody would really care what they have to say. Had the disciples fabricated this, were the resurrection not true, Peter and John and James would have got together. They would have said, well, we found the empty tomb. Not women. We're the heroes of the story. It's to their shame that the women find this and speak of this and tell them of this. But notice what the angel tells them. He says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Why and Peter? It's not because Peter's the leader of the disciples. It's not because he has some special status. It's because Peter has likely pulled away from the other 10 men who followed Jesus. And Judas, of course, by this point is dead. Peter, after denying Jesus Christ himself, probably assumed that he was no longer part of the group. Because Jesus had said, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's exactly what Peter had done. So Peter probably feels like he is, he's done. He spent his time following Jesus, but when rubber met the road, he failed and he's, he's out. In church, I've said this before, but the difference between Peter and, the different, and Judas, the difference between those two men is, Simply this, Peter may not have seen himself as a disciple, but when he was hurt, he went back to the church. He went back to his brothers and sisters. When Judas realized what he did, he didn't repent. He just felt bad about it. And he was told to figure it out for himself. And so he, he goes off on his own and he hangs himself. This is why the church is important. This is why we come together to rebuild one another, to help one another. When you fail, we hurt together. We want to build up each other. That we might go and tell the good news. And we want to go and we want to tell the good news, but the first place we have to start is right here. It has to start in the church. If you can't share the good news with a brother or sister in Christ, if you can't talk about the gospel with one another here, how do you expect to do it out there? If you can't treat your person across the sanctuary from you like the mission field and love them and approach them and lead them to Christ and be available to them, how can we expect to do that in our community and the world around us? And I say this too. Sometimes the church does hurt people. Sometimes the church does, we're all human. We make mistakes. We say things too harsh. We say things too, 
the wrong tone, things like that. And there are times where people will say, well, the church hurt me, when really what they mean is the church told me to stop sinning. The church was trying to love me into a better relationship with Christ. It's not hurtful to tell someone lovingly, hey, you need to stop doing this. It's, it's not a good witness. It's not, it's not something a brother or sister in Christ should be doing. That's not to be hurtful. That's to be helpful. Because that's what we do. We, we spur one another on towards what? Love and good deeds. But I'm rabbit trailing, so forgive me. The angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter. We follow that example. The good news, like I said, it starts here. Telling those who hunger after truth, who hunger for the, for the word of God, this is the place where they should expect to find it week in and week out. Amen? Nowhere else on earth offers the, true, the truth that the church offers. And I don't necessarily mean faith assembly of God, but the church, the body of Christ. It's a healing truth. It's a unifying truth. And it's the most beautiful truth that he is risen. And he goes before you. Just as he goes before the disciples to Galilee, he'll appear to those disciples in Jerusalem. We know that. He's going to appear to Mary in a couple of verses. In a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll revisit that. But ultimately, they go to Galilee where they're going to see Jesus face to face for the last time. They'll see him just as he had told them. He told them back in chapter 14, before, uh, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. This shows Jesus' words are reliable. Everything he taught them, everything he said is going to come to fruition. And everything he said has come to pass. So this is no different. And they have hope because of that. Finally, in verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, and trembling in astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They ran away. They were terrified. They were scared. Their bodies are shaking because terror and amazement have taken hold. And, and no matter what the angel had said, they can't help that. This is a scary time. No one on earth has experienced what they're experiencing in this moment. And they're trying to process everything. They're trying to understand what they just saw, what they just heard. There's no way this was some kind of mass hallucination, by the way. Those things don't work this way. When people have a mass hallucination, everybody sees different things. They don't see the same thing. So what just happened? Were they all dreaming? No, they'd gotten up. They'd walked miles, probably, to Calvary, to the tomb. So initially, they don't want to tell anyone. Mark says, because they're afraid. Now we know eventually they will do exactly as the angel instructed. Matthew 28 verse 8 says, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Luke tells us, returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. These women were the first to proclaim the good news of the risen Christ. That Jesus is no longer dead. Jesus was crucified, but he's no longer buried. That he's been raised up on that third day. He's no longer in the grave. And through that truth, we can have peace with God. We can be justified, sanctified, made righteous. Because someday we're going to be glorified when we enter into his presence in eternity. 
Because of this truth, we do not fear death, but we know there will be a resurrection because Paul tells us to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. What better news is there? It's not just the good news. That's the greatest news. He is risen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up. Paul says something else, and I hope these words bring you the comfort that they have brought me. Romans 8, 28 and 29, we know that those, uh, I'm sorry, we know that for those who, le- who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many others. What's that firstborn really mean there? It means there will be others who are resurrected. We are those who will see that. We are those who have a resurrection to look forward to, provided Christ doesn't return beforehand. The first time he came in a manger, he died a martyr's death on a cross. But because he rose, the next time he comes, we can look forward to him coming as a conquering king. We can live in faith and in hope, overcoming that fear of whatever this life may throw at us. We don't have to be afraid of what comes next. I've said this before from the pulpit. I don't care who sits in the Oval Office because I know who sits on the throne. We don't have to be afraid of what comes next because we know at the end of the day, he is risen. And if Christ is risen and we're in Christ, we shall rise too. The grave has no hold on us. This mortal flesh is not what we live for, but we live for what comes after. So as we close today, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to worship. And if you're here, maybe you're watching online. If you're here and you're, you're wrestling with anxiety, you're wrestling with worry, you, you really are afraid of what's, what's going to happen, what's coming next. This is where that has come to die. That something new might take root in your heart and in your mind. It's like I mentioned at the beginning of service, if you would ask someone to pray with you, to pray for you, that's totally okay. We'd ask you to do that. If, if they're busy, come to the front, I'll pray with you. Or a prayer team will pray with you. Yes, Jesus. But you know, the best part of all of this, the best part of that good news is it wasn't limited to those ladies. It wasn't limited to the 11 men they took it to that day. It's for all of us. Christ is risen. Amen? Amen. Amen.